Well, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 2, and for those who are wondering, no, I'm not planning to preach on a psalm every time it's my turn to preach. It just uh, happened that way. Uh, what I was going for was seeking to complement James's preaching through Judges. So we know that in the book of Judges, <clears throat> you know, there, there's no king on the throne, and so each person does what is right in his or her own eyes, and so... Um, so the result is that the people plunge into corruption and degradation and chaos. But Psalm 2 shows us the opposite. Psalm 2 shows us that the reality that there is a king on the throne of the universe. And he's a king who demands a response. And that his reign is something to be longed for and rejoiced in. <clears throat> Psalm 2, I think, is also timely because about two months ago, <clears throat> excuse me, Utah preached on Psalm 1. Um, so Psalm 1 told us the choice that faces us to follow the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. Uh, but Psalm 2 tells of the conflict that rages as a result of people being gathered into those two very different pathways. So they complement each other and uh, interpret one another. And these two psalms really form the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And their, their themes uh, are repeated and interpreted in various ways throughout the Psalter. Um, Psalm 1, as Utah mentioned, could be, could be called two ways to live. Psalm 2 would be more like the two kingdoms or something to that effect. But before we get any further, let me read the psalm for us and then pray for us. You'll find Psalm 2 on page 448 of the Pew Bibles. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You may be seated. <clears throat> Father God, we come to you, to your word this morning. We seek to know you as you are, not as society says you should be, not as our wayward desires sometimes wish you would be. So we ask that you would open our eyes to let us see the majesty of Christ for our good and his glory. Amen. Well, there's no denying that the nations are raging. World leaders are testing and flaunting their latest military weapons. 
And that process may be great for their egos, but there's a lot of collateral damage. And these advancements actually aren't creating the stable order that they're supposed to. Elsewhere, we see upstart armies that are still engaging in mass rape, kidnappings, torture, and genocide. Regional warlords also create devastating famine and disease as they systematically prevent resources from flowing to areas of great need. On the other hand, supposedly civilized countries are promoting the destruction of the most vulnerable human lives, actually billing this as a pathway to human flourishing. Heads of state are also promoting destructive sexual practices which distort the good design of our creator. And in all of this, there is little or no safe harbor for the people of God. From the point of view of the powers of the age, these religious nuts should either be lured to assimilate into the culture at large or they should be snuffed out. Sound familiar? I'm actually describing the situation in the ancient Near East around 1000 B.C., the time frame in which this psalm was written. It sounds so relevant for us today because the situation actually never changes. The nations are always raging, always conspiring, and since Eden and Babel, all conflict against each other is actually just a proxy for our conflict against God. The rulers of this world are responding so emotionally to God's universal rule. They can't stomach it one bit, and so they're going to throw it off at all costs. What are God's people to do in a world full of such rebellion, such hatred from powerful leaders? Well, the psalmist is neither surprised nor worried by this worldwide rebellion, and neither should we be. Today, we're going to look at the psalm in four sections. These four sections each have three verses each, and we'll see that in each section, someone different is speaking. So in the first section... Verses 1 through 3, we see that the nations are speaking. But who are the nations in Psalm 2? We should understand that the kings of the earth and the rulers, um, it's not just referencing absolute monarchs of centuries past. It's not just thinking of dictators in countries that we hope we never have to visit. No, the problem is much more pervasive than that. Think of media moguls. Think of Hollywood culture makers education policy writers, corporate tycoons, United Nations spokespeople, billionaires using their money to lobby for public policy. But not only that, think also of any local business or venture or cooperative or council or social group or union or collective that could wield any influence whatsoever over individuals. As one commentator put it, there is scarcely a commercial, intellectual, or cultural entity anywhere on this earth that wouldn't resent God's claims on it. So we gather in these groups and we have these leaders that have this bent of rebellion against God because that's the natural bent of our desires. We ignorantly assume that we can order our lives better than our creator can. And we want power for ourselves and for our communities that is rightfully and for our good reserved only for him. So these are the twisted shared desires that prompt our leaders to scheme against Yahweh, wanting to cast off any influence whatsoever that he could have over them. So the nations and the rulers are speaking here, or rather they're grumbling, they're scheming, they're fuming. The word translated plot in verse 1 is actually the same word that's translated meditate 
in Psalm 1, verse 2. You can see the contrast here. Instead of meditating on the word of God, these rebellious ones are meditating on scheming, meditating on schemes against their creator. What are they thinking? That's what these verses seem to ask. Are they crazy? Don't they know that it's all in vain? I mean, this is God we're dealing with. You can't fight against God. And yet we know that this state of rebellion is natural for humanity. You'll find it everywhere. You'll find it if you go to an isolated tribe in the middle of the most primitive jungle. Or if you go to a sophisticated city and brush up against well-educated people. Wherever you are, you'll be encountering people who are dead set against submitting to God's rule in their lives. In whatever groups we gather, the powerful ones will almost always be leading their people in rebellion against God. Of course, if you read these verses to them, they would be indignant. They would be confused. They would say, no, that's not what I'm doing. My decisions aren't in reference to God at all. I'm not deciding to do things either for God or against God. I don't even believe God exists, they might say. And therefore, it's impossible for me to be trying to burst his bonds or cast away his cords. Well, this psalm gives us a peek at what's going on behind all of that. We may not be aware that they are his cords, but they are his nonetheless. We may think that we're merely fighting other people or other groups or impersonal ideas. But if we're rejecting the way things are meant to be in his realm, then the rebellion is very much against the God that we may not even acknowledge. Our ignorance or rejection of him doesn't change the fact that he is God. And the powers of this world work, either intentionally or unintentionally, to obscure his rule and to terrorize his people. What are we to think of this state of things? Well, in the second section, verses 4 through 6, we hear God speak. And actually, first we hear God laugh, which we should definitely take note of because it's the only place in Scripture that it mentions God laughing. Well, what's comical here? Well, it's, it's comical because this rebellion is all in vain and God isn't threatened in the least. He's not picking up the phone to call his generals. He's not rushing into a fortified bunker. He's not up in heaven wringing his hands. Oh. No, instead he scoffs at the most powerful people in the world who think that their schemes are so secure. He holds them in derision because the nations are a drop in the bucket and they have the same impact as mere specks of dust on a scale. So this plotting and these attempts to destroy God's rule, they are little more than a barking dog chasing a garbage truck. But God goes farther than just deriding them. It says he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. His righteous anger results in a proclamation that if we understand it rightly, it should be terrifying to this world's leaders. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's saying, you may conspire and rebel, but I have already decided who will rule your world, and it's not you. God won't let the rebellion go on forever. He has done something decisive. He has raised up a king with authority over every person and every nation. And to see what's going on here, we have to go back to 11th century BC. 
God had raised up the ancient people of Israel to serve as a family through which all families of the earth could be reunited with their creator, brought back into relationship with him. And in the middle of a region with rulers who violently opposed Israel and violently opposed Israel's God, Yahweh established a line of kings. The first of the dynasty was David. He was considered the Lord's anointed because he had been anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel to indicate his kingship. David's enthronement was a decisive moment in God's plan to reconcile all of creation to himself. But it wasn't decisive because of David himself necessarily. It was more about what the Davidic kingship represented. Because it was a job description much bigger than any mere mortal could fill. David was enthroned on Mount Zion, literally a hill in Jerusalem. But that became, uh, Zion came to represent a realm of justice, beauty, and knowledge. And the vision was for the Davidic king to rule from Zion until its blessings and transformation flowed out to the whole world. And God did make his rule known through David. Neighboring enemies were subdued. Yahweh's fame spread far and wide through the righteous reign of this worship leader king, but not perfectly. The Davidic kings were sinful and frail, and so we quickly see that a psalm like this doesn't quite fit David or Solomon or Hezekiah or really any of the ancient kings of Judah. This job description fits them about as well as professional football gear would fit my three-year-old son. And this is precisely why the promise of such a king should so terrify the enemies of God, because it has to do with a higher king, a king with identity, destiny, and authority that we'll read about next. Centuries later, a descendant of David would claim once and for all this throne as God's anointed one. And his fulfillment of this psalm is so well known that even the school across Guelph Street is called Christ the King. We learn more as we move down to this third section, verses 7 through 9. And in this third section, it is God's appointed king himself who is the one speaking. Verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we see that the king, who is mentioned in verse 6, is now speaking and retelling the story of how he was enthroned by God and for what purpose. God said to him, Today you are my son. Today I have become your father. And this sounds strange to us when we think about Jesus because, I mean, wasn't he eternally the son? Yes, he certainly was, and many scriptures attest to that. But in 2 Samuel 7 and in Psalm 89, we also see that the Davidic kings were referred to as sons of God. Not because they were in any way divine, but rather because they functionally were going about the same business that their father was. And in the ancient world, the vast majority of people took up the same trade that their father had done for a living. So these Davidic kings are sons on the basis of their covenant with God to be his representatives here in this world. The king isn't just a puppet, but he has a special relationship to God as a son and therefore as an heir. And so 
who better to take up the office of son than the one who by essence was the very son of God from all of eternity. At the fullness of time, the line of anointed kings that had stood extinct for 600 years burst into life again with the anointed king, the one who in the deepest and fullest sense was declared with power to be the son of God. Jesus didn't become the son of God, but he was confirmed as such. And scripture specifically associates that confirmation, that final enthronement as the greater David with his resurrection and ascension. So we know that Jesus right now is enthroned over all of creation and he's ready to usher in the age of the heavenly city where God dwells with man. For the rulers of this age, that should be frightening. The king goes on to tell of God the Father's instructions to him. Take the nations and rule. God has commissioned this anointed one or Messiah to use whatever force is necessary to subdue the world and receive his inheritance to the farthest end of the earth. And it's rather graphic. I mean, using an iron scepter to smash the nations like pottery. The image reveals to us the actual frailty of, of these great powers that we see around us today. They're pottery. Vladimir Putin, pottery. NATO, pottery. ISIS, pottery. Xi Jinping, pottery. OPEC, pottery. Eurozone, pottery. And so forth. Well, the future implications are drawn out even further in Revelation 6 as it describes the day when the shattering will come. It says, The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's a terrifying picture. But God's just wrath doesn't negate the fact that he's also merciful. And we see that in the fourth section, in the warnings of verses 9 through 12. This last section, it's no longer the anointed king speaking but rather it's the Spirit of God interpreting all these things through the inspired psalm writer. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. While the Christ has been enthroned, mercifully the time for dashing to pieces has not yet fully arrived. And there is still time to heed these warnings, time to submit to the Lord, time to declare allegiance to the Son, but not an indefinite amount of time. While it's true that the Lord could delay his return for thousands of more years, it's also true that the life of anyone who clings to power against him could be taken away tomorrow. He is the one who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up rulers. So your very efforts against him are being carried out on borrowed time. And we notice the patience of God here and that he's calling for the powerful ones of the earth to assess their situation. It makes me think of a plot line familiar to us from from old movies or, or from some episodes in history. Imagine that a realm is plunged into the chaos of a long civil war. 
and the rightful heir to the throne is presumed dead or at least in permanent exile. But then one day, he arrives, and with him comes a powerful entourage, and he firmly reclaims the throne and establishes his kingdom. As news of this goes out across the realm, the combatants are terrified. They know that the retribution of the king is sure to be swift. But then another messenger comes with good news. Clemency for rebels. Come to the royal palace. Kiss the king's signet ring and swear loyalty to him. All will be forgiven. That's a a basic picture of, of some of the truths we see here. Of course, this illustration fails in one respect. It fails that it might be possible for the rebel seeking clemency to merely go through the motions to pretend his loyalty while his or her heart is still bitter against the king. And sadly, I suspect that there are many so-called Christians today doing just that, going through the motions because of fear while their hearts are still far from him. But that's not the worship that he requires. It says rejoice with trembling. And just as we saw two weeks ago in Malachi, fear and love can and must go together when it's the transcendent God that we're approaching. Now I'm fully aware that this, the, the picture here, the fierceness of God in these verses, it, it must come as a shock to our modern sensibilities. And, and I think that that's exactly why we need to study passages like this. Because they can wake us up to our naivete about the world. And you may say that you would never want a king who terrifies in his fury. You could never love that sort of a king. You may believe that there are other ways to deal with the chaos, with the raging of the nations. You may believe that the positive pursuit of diplomacy and, and peacemaking, disarmament, education, and equality will build a better world and eventually will prevent the raging of the nations. Well, I wholeheartedly agree that we should pour ourselves into these positive efforts. At times, they do mitigate the chaos of the world, but we cannot place our hope in them. These efforts will fail us time and time again. Think back on the optimism surrounding the League of Nations or the peacemaking of Neville Chamberlain or Glasnost and Perestroika or Hugo Chavez, or even the Obama Doctrine. All the optimism surrounding these movements, it could be dismantled in just a few years. And that's because the actual problem is in the human heart. These efforts at positive statemanship, they, they don't address the rebellion of sin. And, and even self-government, even democracy, for all of its strengths, it still leaves us as individual kings and queens of our distorted little kingdoms, so we need a benevolent king who will set the world right. We need to accept our beautiful roles in his reality rather than fighting to remain the stars of our own fiction. Verse 12 specifically says to kiss the sun. The implication is that you can't, you can't somehow be for God and against his anointed king. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the wise response includes both a willingness to receive what God has said about his anointed one, Jesus, and also a joyful, loving submission to him. 
And in that response, you can find gladness and rest. If you don't know Jesus, I believe God is appealing to you today through this psalm. Don't reject his rightful lordship over you. Don't fall in line with the kings of the earth who resist him and seek to obscure and replace his rule. Don't perish in the way. And if you're in a place where you say, I don't feel like I can come to him rejoicing. I can fear him, but I can't love him. Then please speak to me or someone else afterward today. Because we've all been there. We have all waged war against him in our hearts. But God, being rich in mercy, opened our eyes to the goodness and the power of what Jesus accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. And he created in us a loyalty and a love that just wasn't there before. And this can be your story too as you come to kiss the sun and celebrate his righteous reign. Now let's look at this last sentence, which I believe is the main application for the whole psalm. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Although these, uh, these verses we were just discussing seem to address the kings of the earth and the powerful ones, we know that the audience for the psalm as a whole is the people of God. That's why it was in their songbook. It was used in their worship. These words were written for the people of God. In ancient Israel, it helped them to process, what does it mean that we're opposed on every side? What does it mean that following God seems to come at a great cost? Will he ever respond? Will he act? Will he change those circumstances? And the purpose of the psalm is to comfort us that it's foolish and futile to fight against Christ and that he is a worthy refuge. At the end of the day, he's the only reliable refuge. It doesn't matter who's in parliament, who's invading your homeland, who's exploiting you or using power in a way that God didn't give it for. There is a renewal coming and you will share in the inheritance of the anointed one. And here I think we should step back and and look at how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 fit together. Because when you look at them, you can see that they're they're bookended. They begin and end with a definition of those who are blessed. In Psalm 1, we see the blessing of the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And then here in Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the anointed one, in God's appointed king. So Psalm 2, in a way, interprets Psalm 1. The way of sinners is made more clear in Psalm 2. It is insurrection against God. But the righteous one is also made more specific in Psalm 2. The true righteous one who walks in this way is the Christ, is God's anointed king. And we too can follow in that pathway as we take refuge in him. The world hates God's anointed, but the righteous embrace him and are blessed. So I want to ask today, Christian, do you believe that your blessing comes only from him? In an age that glorifies independence and freedom of will, we can easily find ourselves drifting to the side of the nations. I mean, we wouldn't say we're opposing God. We would never want that. But 
we're tempted to hedge our bets, to find treasure behind other powers as well. Think of Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia with his hot chocolate and bit of Turkish delight. Where are you placing your trust? What do you see and say, wow, this is powerful? Who or what are you seeking refuge in and what are you hoping to get from them? Wealth, success, a sense of belonging, control, safety, anesthetizing pleasure. These are things that the rulers of this world can give you for a time. They can when you show allegiance to them. So are you going that route? Are you seeking refuge from multiple masters? Are you tired of being caught in the middle of the raging and so you're just trying to make your own peace with them? Before whom or what do you tremble? Well, I want to remind you to rejoice and take refuge solely in Christ because our only hope is God himself. He's unmoved by time or disaster, unshaken by political, military, or economic turmoil. We as earthly creatures get caught up in that turmoil, but we can take refuge in our God who laughs at his enemies and topples them at his will. Returning to that laughing, that scoffing that we saw uh, in verse 4, I also want to mention that that this doesn't mean that you and I have license to, to laugh at and deride our enemies. There are times in Scripture when a prophet of God communicates God's derision toward his enemies, but we never see that tone modeled for the people of God as a whole. Instead, we see respect toward those in authority, we see love for our enemies, and we see a quiet trust in our protector. So, for example, we see those uh, standing before the fiery furnace, saying in a matter-of-fact manner that they can worship God alone. We see Peter and John saying, without belligerence, we must obey God rather than men. And we even saw our Lord, before his enthronement, standing silently before his accusers. So leave the mocking of enemies to God himself. And don't try to smash the nations in his name either. Some have erred here and, and I think over-politicized the faith. And people fret and they rant because this or that political party is in power. And what does that mean for our lives? And instead of bringing the matter to prayer and going forward with humble civil service, they actually add to their raging chaos and they participate in the soundbite wars and in the character assassinations. They're not taking refuge. They're trying to build their own refuge that looks strangely like the world's refuge. But because Christ is seated on the throne, you can take comfort that no outside forces can ultimately harm you or keep you from flourishing. Even death was subdued by our king at the resurrection. So whether Christians are being burned alive as garden torches for the emperor Nero or crucified upside down at high tide in 16th century Japan, they have a refuge. Whether Christians are being steamrolled to death in today's North Korea or hunted down by their jihadist family and former friends, they have a refuge. Or when Christians are simply misrepresented and humiliated across Western culture, they have a refuge. And you can represent your king boldly, knowing he is enthroned right now 
and even the great evils in the world can't escape his sovereign design. All of history is being woven into his majestic story and he will subdue the powers of the earth. And we need only to take refuge in him. So what should Christians do when a gag order is being issued on our good news? What do we do when the policymakers decide that our beliefs amount to treason against our culture? And so they set out to intimidate the church, even using the legal system to do so. Well, I'm actually speaking about the situation in Acts chapter 4. What did they do? They got to work in prayer. And they quoted Psalm 2 back to God, saying, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let it be the same for us. Father, we rejoice that a day is coming very soon when it will be clear to all that the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Until that day, Lord, give us this same trust in your word that we see modeled for us in Acts chapter 4. Cause us to know, God, that the schemes of the nations are no threat to your good plans, both for us and for the world. You are our refuge. We desire no other.